0: it all started in the early evening in paris on april 15th evening mass was being held in notre dame cathedral at 6:20 p.m the fire alarm rang out some tourists left the building but many attending the mass stayed it wasn't until a full 20 minutes later and it was obvious that their church was burning there is a terrible fire notre dame is burning the news spread through the news outlets Twitter, and the city itself. The cathedral was evacuated, and eventually, the entire Ile de Cité. Hundreds of firefighters arrived. They fought the fire from the inside, trying to minimize damage to the structure, as embers and bits of molten lead rained down on them. Several times, they were driven back by the sheer temperature of the inferno. Drones buzzed around, watching the progress of the fire from above. Clouds of gray smoke billowed outwards, obscuring the setting sun. Crowds of Parisians gathered on either bank of the Seine to watch, take pictures with their phones, and pray. They watched in horror as yellow and orange flames danced along the roof. They saw the flames begin to climb the iconic wooden spire. And they cried out when that spire bent right down the middle and collapsed in a cloud of dancing orange flames. As night fell, the cathedral glowed in eerie orange, flames setting the windows of the church aglow. Their church was burning. Could it be saved? Were the relics and the artwork destroyed? In that moment the spire collapsed, many had the same thought. Our beloved cathedral would never be the same. This is Spark Dialogue Podcasts. You can find us at sparkdialogue.com, on Facebook and Twitter, or wherever you find your podcasts. Spark Dialogue tells the stories of science and technology and how they relate to our society, history, culture, Art, religion, the future, and today, history, architecture, and firefighting technology. I'm your host, Elizabeth Fernandez. I want to take some time to share some brief, exciting news with you. Spark Dialogue is coming to Patreon. That means that you'll be able to help support the podcast and interact with it in ways that you haven't been able to before. Look for more information in the coming weeks at sparkdialogue.com, and we'll also tell you more information right here on the podcast.
1: Hello, I'm Stephen Murray, a professor of Art History and Archaeology, recently retired from Columbia University. And uh, I've spent 50 years teaching medieval architecture and uh, Notre Dame uh, has um, been one of the focus points of my uh, research. I published a a very key piece on this building um, in the late 1990s.
0: I remember the first time I saw Notre Dame. I exited the metro and climbed the stairs to the surface. There it was, something that up until that point I had only seen in books and pictures. It was in front of me, a piece of living history, tourists and pigeons swarming around the square in front of it. Over the next several years, I was able to get to know the building quite well. I climbed the top and heard the bells toll while overlooking Paris in the company of gargoyles. I attended service on Good Friday and saw the Crown of Thorns housed in the cathedral and brought out only for viewing on certain occasions. And like so many people before me, I marveled at those incredible rose windows, catching the sunlight. How amazing those bright colors must have looked to people hundreds of years ago that stepped into that building to admire them just like I was today.
1: It's fixed in, in our memories, isn't it? And um, what, what does Notre Dame look like? It looks like itself. It looks like our memory images. And most of us um, can remember, um, I think I was 14 years old when I first uh, went to, to Paris and I was growing up in the grimy gray midlands of England uh, in the, in the years after world war two, it was not terribly bright and cheerful over there, you know, and uh, suddenly you come to the city of lights. My gosh, it's, uh, uh, it's transformative. And there's this, this cathedral that we all have this image in our mind of having seen it at some similar point. And um, it's the good news is that the kind of, Outpouring of love of that building all across the world. I, I'm on the board of friend, uh, the directors of the Friends of Notre Dame, and uh, we've been fundraising for a while, and the fundraising has not been all that um, easy. But now the money is gushing, um, uh, and uh, th- that building has needed a really not not a light fix-up, but a radical fix-up for quite a long time, and it looks like it will finally get it. But I wish it was for not for this reason.
0: When we look at Notre Dame with its two towers, vaulted ceilings, and flying buttresses, why was it built the way it was? That
1: is the most wonderful question. Why was it built the way it was? Uh, We tend to take large, imposing buildings for granted. We look at it and we say, this is a Gothic cathedral. This is the way cathedrals look. They all look like that. And the questions um, tend to stop right there. And um, uh, it it is far more exciting than that. In the 50 years of teaching of mentioned, I've spent that time trying to persuade students to challenge that authority, to ask questions, never take a building uh, for granted. The first thing that one needs to say about Notre Dame, as you think about it in the context of the 12th century, is that it was extraordinary. This was not a normal building. It was way out of line with what was being done um, in the north. It's the first building to go beyond a hundred feet uh, in northern Europe and um, what was necessary to make that vision work were a series of technical tricks, the first of which um, we know very little about, but you can suppose that this very imposing building must rest on enormous foundations. Uh, On the Ile de la Cité there, there's an alluvial uh, overlay, in fact a lot of it is still, and uh, I don't know how deep they must have gone down to make um, the the structure safe. Uh, Secondly, uh, they went for a new vision of architectural structure, which in a sense pushed the muscles of the building, pushed the, 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 the critical structural supporting elements, from the inside to the outside. Traditionally, uh, a basilica, that's to say a longitudinal church, had an arcade, a line of supports, that supported the main roof, and the arcade supported the weight of the main roof. And Notre-Dame, on the other hand, They created a series of exterior, I want to call them pylons, um, uh, struts, uh, rectangular supports. They're deep, six meters or so projecting out. They must have very deep foundations. And these exterior supports, not the main arcade, but the exterior supports flanking the building, uh, go up and they launch flying buttresses um, towards the main body of the building, and the weight of the upper superstructure is supported not just on the main arcade as a traditionally bu- traditional building would, but uh, by these flying buttresses that carry the weight of the building from the inside to the outside.
0: When it was built, it took the elements of cathedrals already in existence, but then its builders did something extraordinary. They went beyond what was already known and made something new, a revolutionary new style of Gothic architecture. In the 12th century, Paris was becoming um, a center of political
1: power. In in fact, it was becoming a capital city. And it didn't happen all at once. Uh, And uh, we could argue that the um, clergy of the cathedral of Notre Dame uh, were aware of the fact that once again, Paris, the future of Paris was uh, of the center of the universe, the greatest city in the north, cultural capital of the world, as it was, of the northern world, that is. And they deliberately wanted to create a building that was not like the other ones. And in order to do that, they reached beyond the normal domain, the normal area of architectural production in the north. And they looked to the greatest building of Christendom. And they attempted to mimic aspects of the great church of St. Peter's in Rome. That's the old St. Peter's, not the current uh, church, which is is a Baroque structure. Uh, They wanted to, to match this incredible building um, in terms of its height. So St. Peter's, um, the roof is 100 feet above the pavement. Notre Dame is shooting towards 100 feet above the pavement, but also double aisles. This is not just any church. Any church will have a single corridor of space on each side. That's the side aisle. St. Peter's had two, and Notre Dame has two. Similarly, the east end of Notre Dame in the continuous sweep, the continuous rounded sweep with a passage or ambulatory uh, curving around there, and reaches back to Roman uh, prototypes. And um, the previous great basilica on the site of Notre Dame was the church of St. Etienne, St. Stephen, which had been founded by the King Childebert um, uh, who was king um, in the early 6th century. It mimicked Italian architecture similar to the basilicas of Ravenna or Rome. And this was the church that was gonna be replaced. So it's a wooden roof basilica, tall, spacious, airy, bright. And the builders of Notre Dame, the cathedral that we know, were perfectly aware of this old structure and they wanted to pick up parts of it and mimic it. But they wanted a a, a masonry canopy over the top for the reasons we've discussed. The masonry vaults add uh, fireproofing, but above all, they were prestigious. They made the building very special. And in order to do this, in other words, to combine the spaciousness and brightness of St. Peter's in Rome with a totally vaulted building at the height of of 100 feet above the pavement, they had to come up with some pretty um, innovative tricks. And these are the ones I've described to you. Uh, I haven't mentioned the pointed arch, which, of course, is a critical part of the Gothic vocabulary, which is structurally much more efficient than the old round arch. So pointed arches, flying buttresses, really good uh, foundations. These are the elements that make this building special. And when you ask, what, why does it look the way it does? What does it look like? Notre Dame of Paris looks like a Gothic cathedral. We've all seen a Gothic cathedral. It looks like one, doesn't it? And we can say that because scattered all across France are other buildings that look like Notre Dame. But the important thing to say is that this was the first. Uh, so this isn't just any old building. Uh, this is the one that set the trend. Tall, very tall buildings with these special tricks and some of the, the particular features that we've described. Um, so this is the first, anticipating the fact that um, Paris was in the throes of becoming the capital city. And in a sense, looking back to the glories of Paris as it had been first as a Christian capital under the kings that had, had brought Christianity to the north. These are the Merovingian kings, King Clovis and King Childebert So in a sense, uh, the, the astonishing thing about Notre Dame is it is
0: looking to the past in order to create the future. The roof of Notre Dame is also quite impressive. It used 13,000 trees to be built. That's over 21 hectares of forest. But what's even more extraordinary, the advances in architecture at the time Notre Dame was built actually allowed the builders to use less timber than they would have if the roof and wall were similar to cathedrals in the past, which featured more massive and heavier roofs.
1: Just as there was a revolution in architectural practice in the sense of stone masonry involving the the new buttressing system I've mentioned, so um, uh, also there was a revolution in carpentry, partly driven, no doubt, by the fact that trees were becoming more difficult uh, to find uh, in the 12th century. Deforestation was already um, a problem. So this roof is characterized uh, by the fact that the the timber is of less mass than previous roofs. And um, the assembly... is is more technically advanced. Uh, So in other words, you you need less mass. It's a steep roof. The the older Romanesque roofs tended to be rather shallow. And rather than having a a main structural supporting uh, element at at every point of the building, um, it's a rhythmic thing thing, in which the main supports, they are basically triangles. Uh, A triangle is a very uh, firm structure in carpentry. So you, you intersperse the triangles then by a thinner structure. And that way you save a lot of wood and the roof is skinnier, and of course in the event of a fire when this thing catches fire, if it catches fire, um, the the damage will be much less because there's much less lumber to burn. The huge damage at Notre Dame um, in the recent fire came in the area of the crossing, and uh, there you've got a steeple, a central spire, and it was supported by a jungle of beams. In fact, it's called Le Furet, the Forest of Beams. That existed. These are diagonal braces of considerable dimension, and uh, these are uh, what really blazed and uh, brought down the crossing
0: vault. I know that regarding the roof and the fire, um, another characteristic of the ceiling of Notre Dame is that it's vaulted, which means that these vaults help the ceiling to be fireproof and in the case of a fire, it would protect the main part of the church. And I know I saw pictures where the main part of the ceiling is intact, but where the spire was, that's a, that is is where it's collapsed. So did the vaults help protect the cathedral in this case? That's
1: a terrific point, and it's one of the critical aspects of what Gothic architecture was invented to do. Uh, we have a, a wonderful account of a 12th century fire at Canterbury Cathedral in 1174 the old roof caught fire and burned and there you did not have vaults in the old cathedral at Canterbury it was a wooden structure uh, that had a a coffering on the inside a continuous skin of painted wood and made of massive chunks of wood massive beams of wood and Gervais the chronicler Gervais of Canterbury tells us that this thing caught fire and it collapsed blazing uh, into the interior of the structure and there it blazed for long enough to scorch uh, the stone of the main supports. Stone is, is thought to be inflammable, but of course it's not. You, you can get stone so hot that um, uh, it becomes like powdery, um, it, it becomes reddened and starts to crack, and it, the, the supports are no longer going to be effective. So, uh, fires were a common hazard. In medieval architecture, just as fires are common in California, the problem is that the houses are too close to the, 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 the woods in the forest in California. Forests were um, uh, Roof fires were a normal phenomenon in medieval buildings. And uh, one of the points of Gothic was to protect the inside of the building uh, from the uh, fire. And it was pretty effective. The, the building has not been adequately photographed inside yet. It looks like there are three big holes. Some beams came through, but they were kind of skinny, thin, and the firemen were able to control them. Uh, did it work? It, it worked pretty well. The vaults are, are masonry, of course. They're composed of, of transverse arches and diagonal ribs. And between these main structural elements, there are skins of stone, relatively thin. Uh, they're sometimes called severies or webs. They're made up of individual semi-cut, semi-shaped stones. And then on top of that, um, normally um, a layer of mortar is put. I've not been up above the vaults at Notre Dame for a long time. I've forgotten how much mortar is up there, but the mortar would certainly protect the stone from damage. The, the danger at Notre Dame um, is that the, the, these shell like structures come down into deep pockets uh, at the sides where, where the vaults spring away from the vertical. And all that water that was pumped up there through the hose pipes is going to settle into the pockets and saturate that there's um, uh, rubble and um, some ballast up there. And that's going to be enormously heavy. And if I were in charge of Notre Dame, I'd worry a lot uh, about that added weight up there. And certainly you'd want to protect it as fast as you can from uh, additional rain um, damage. But uh, on the whole, um, uh, I have to say that the the Gothic system of fireproofing worked pretty well. Um, Had there not been a spire on on the building, um, I, I think it would have survived almost intact. It's the spire that really crashed the great holes through the, through the vaults, and the crossing vault in particular. That did not come down immediately. The first pictures I saw of the, of the interior of that crossing vault was still intact. I was just made a little later when I, the next picture showed it down.
0: When Notre Dame caught fire, hundreds of firefighters arrived to act quickly. They pumped millions of gallons of water onto the roof and the burning timbers. But all of this water has to go somewhere. Some seep into the pores within the rocks themselves, sometimes penetrating deep into the masonry. And just like when water finds a way into your own house, it's going to take a long time before this water dries out, potentially causing mildew and degrading the structure of the masonry itself. The rest of the water? Well, it has to go somewhere, into the foundation and the basement of the cathedral.
1: I'm sure they're watching the building very closely and very carefully at this point. Um, the, The area of the pockets which I've described are normally filled with, uh, with rubble and mortar. It, it, it would absorb a, a lot of water and exert a lot of pressure um, pushing the vaults inward.
0: Besides destroying the timber roof, the fire might have damaged the rock of the building itself. Imagine this. The roaring fire reached incredible temperatures, 800 to 1,500 degrees Celsius. Glass shatters at 650 degrees Celsius. And lead, which was in the roof, melts at a mere 327 degrees Celsius. Then suddenly, all of this cold water is dumped through the masonry. This huge swing in temperature could very well damage the rocks themselves.
1: Yes, I'm not a technical expert in that, but I would imagine it would be pretty devastating. Notre Dame was a very a correct building in its verticality. As you know, Gothic cathedrals tend to begin to sag at a certain point in their life. Uh, Notre Dame has been fairly free of that characteristic sagging. But um, the uh, the wonderful thing about Notre Dame, and I referred to the the article I published on this building in the 1990s, the wonderful thing um, is that this was a building, actually they got pretty much right the first time around. It had been believed that the great flying buttresses that looked like oars sticking out around the boat of of the cathedral, those great flying buttresses um, were there right from the start. Uh, Previous scholarship, at least some of it, most of it, had argued those flying buttresses were a remedy to the fact that the building was not behaving itself. It was beginning to to, uh, deform and uh, forcing the builders to put up flying buttresses. Uh, I I was able to show uh, on a variety of grounds that, that the flyers were there right from the very start. And so this is what makes Notre Dame uh, such a very important building, because such long-reach flyers had never been employed before, as far as we know. But we can say, I think with confidence, this was the first really big Gothic building, over a hundred feet tall, that embodies all the basic tricks, techniques, strategies of Gothic architecture.
0: What about what happened to the windows and the glass? Was the fire hot enough to damage them as well?
1: At this distance, um, it's very hard to to give a precise answer to that. At first, the reports were coming that the glass had all been lost, but uh, the photographs clearly show the opposite. Um, uh, The windows seem to be up. Uh, I've heard reports that the three great rose windows are still there. Um, I believe that they are at this point putting props and stays and braces to prevent the transept roses from falling out because they were pretty fragile um, even before the fire. And uh, I, I believe that a good deal of the glass, probably most of the glass, has survived.
0: While fires in cathedrals like this may seem rare, it pays to remember that these buildings live long, long lives, much longer than the human lifetime. And over hundreds of years, dramatic events do happen. In the past, when cathedrals caught fire, they were often rebuilt. Builders used modern technology of the day, new styles and developments. Slowly, these buildings evolved.
1: Uh, how does this fire compare with other cathedral fires? Uh, the ones I'm familiar with were Reims Cathedral burned at the end of World War I. Uh, the vaults were punctured also and the building was was, was damaged. Uh, it was put back using um, high-tech method of the time, which was reinforced concrete. And interestingly, it was paid for by Mr. Rockefeller. Uh, Chart Cathedral roof burned in um, 1834. Uh, it was built back using high-tech methods of the time. Uh, which were cast iron. Um, Saint Denis, the great basilica of St. Denis, just north of Paris, that roof, I I don't think it burned. Um, It was dismantled in the revolution. For years, Saint Denis had no roof. Uh, That roof was built back. um, It's a a metallic roof. I believe it's iron and and partly copper. Uh, So those are all precedents for cathedral roofs burning. Um, York Minster roof burned. The disaster there was that there were no vaults, and so the wooden roof fell into the building and blazed. Uh, it's been built back. So what I'm saying is that this is the most devastating, awful disaster, but it, it has happened over and over in other buildings, and in the end, um, it, it's uh, uh, will it be five years down the road? Um, it will. It, it will be fixed. There's a similar story to be told of of the cathedral I just mentioned at um, Amiens, um, where there was a steeple that was built, um, a medieval steeple that was built probably in the early 14th century that burned. Uh, It was struck by lightning in uh, 1528, and it burned, and uh, people thought the whole roof was going to go down. But in the end, uh, uh, fortuitously, a rainstorm put the fire out and otherwise it would have been a similar situation. The roof at Amiens survived and, and the steeple was rebuilt. The steeple was rebuilt almost certainly using Notre Dame uh, of Paris as a prototype or a model.
0: You bring up an interesting point when you're talking about these other fires, that when the fire happened, they rebuilt the roof using modern technology. And I know this is a debate right now. Should the roof and the remodeling be redone to look like what it used to look like, or should it look different? And I was wondering how you weigh in on that.
1: Yes. Well, my immediate instinct um, was to weigh in too strongly on one side, uh, and uh, now at this point, I'm pulling back from my original opinion, which was that it really must be a 21st century vision, uh, a metallic roof, embodying high tech of the 21st century. Because after all, Gothic, that's what Gothic architecture was in its time the highest technology um, uh, applied in order to create a revolution in architecture. Should we allow that revolution to stop and uh, believe all we can do now is replicate the old, or should we push the Gothic revolution uh, into a new stage? That was the opinion I I expressed, I think, on BBC Radio. Uh, Having thought a little further, uh, I think I expressed that a little too early, and I'm anxious just to watch what happens. I believe there's going to be a, a competition. Um, according to Mr. Macron, uh, in that competition, I'm sure that a range of different projects will, will, will be proposed and they will be budgeted. And I, I read this morning um, on some um, uh, news feed uh, uh, of the, the, the French organization known as the Compagnons de Devoir, the brothers of, of, of duty, I guess, the companions of, of duty. Um, these are craftsmen, uh, craftspeople they are uh, trained um, throughout their life in traditional techniques of carpentry and masonry and so on. And apparently there are hundreds of them. And uh, I'm sure that their position will be expressed in the entries for the new competition. So at this point, I think we should look at both sides. I don't know where they'd find enough oak trees. It would take hundreds and hundreds and um, very large ones. The span of that uh, main vessel at Notre Dame is 50 feet. Uh, That's huge oak trees are necessary and of considerable dimension. Where are you going to find those trees? Should we be cutting down forests at this point? Um, So I I go back and forth on this. Uh, If I could return to my original position of three cheers for the 21st century, um, uh, St. John the Divine had a competition back, I think, in the 1990s uh, for finishing the central part of the building. And the winning entry was Santiago Calatrava, and um, he is an architect that is brilliant at creating a gothic look in modern materials and uh, it it had to do with the idea of of breaking open the middle of of um john the divine to a great shaft of light which was the original vision so it's an exciting moment Uh, again i have to say at the beginning of this debate i was very optimistic um that this challenge would bring us all together And uh, as time goes on, I realize we're in the 21st century and we're not together. And already in France, uh, you you know that um, the gilets jaunes, the yellow jackets, the protesters in the streets of Paris are protesting uh, about the immediate promise of a billion euros or so to fix this when their own cause is unanswered. So all that has to be dealt with. And so it's not going to be uh, as straightforward as at first, uh, perhaps, I'd, I'd, I'd hoped.
0: Another question is whether, or, I mean, we talked about this at the beginning of the podcast whether or not the masonry itself, after going through this extreme fire, the extreme temperature changes, the water being poured on it, if it's even strong enough to hold up a roof.
1: Yes. You know, if I were the architect in charge of this building, um, I would be inclined very quickly to get critical elements of the building uh, supported. I don't know if it would be wooden formwork, it always was in the Middle Ages, you you could quickly put up improvised uh, wooden formwork that would fit closely under your arches and under your flying buttresses uh, that would immediately relieve them of any threat of collapse. Having got these things up, um, you then can conduct careful testing. In the vaulting, it's gonna be necessary to build such formwork in in order to reconstruct. There are three major areas where the vaults have crashed and um, in two of those areas in the nave and in the north transept you can certainly use the existing masonry as a model on the other hand the crossing vault is all gone and so they're going to have to to build a a great supporting form or scaffold or uh, something to support the, the reconstruction of that and then the stones will be put into place on top of that formwork
0: Stephen and his late student, Andrew Talon were involved in another form of technology that is very important in understanding architecture of Notre Dame and may even help in its rebuilding. They perform laser scans of cathedrals all over Europe, including Notre Dame. To do this, they place scanners on top of tripods in several locations inside the cathedrals. These scanners send laser beams to sweep over every surface and measure the exact time it takes for the laser pulse to return. This is sort of like how bats find their food using echolocation, except instead of lasers, bats use sound waves. The result of this laser mapping is a remarkably accurate three-dimensional map of every surface of the cathedral.
1: I launched laser scanning as a technique um, to explore the structure of Gothic cathedrals. Uh, Way back in 2001, working with the um, uh, computer scientist at Columbia, and with a device that was invented in California, um, it was called a Sarax scanner. And at that time Beauvais Cathedral was going through intense structural difficulties. And uh, the, the scanning allows you to create um, a three-dimensional image of the building through a process of strobing out uh, dots of laser light that are sprinkled over the surface of the building. The strober goes up and down, uh, leaving a, a line of dots of light the machine can then measure the distance between itself and that dot of light, and it can construct a three-dimensional model before your very eyes on the screen. Then uh, yet another dimension is that um, the system is now controlled by Leica. It was originally um, controlled by a company called Syra in in Oakland, California that invented the device. Uh, Leica now has made it possible to combine the dots of light with a um, fairly high-resolution photograph. So you can actually put the whole building together as a, photo- as a photograph of itself. And um, it, it has a kind of magic quality. I like to compare it with an image not made by human hands. Yeah, I've measured out buildings by hand, stretching tapes and so on. Uh, and it's laborious. You draw it out by hand and some bits you can control adequately. Other bits you just make up because you can't quite control it. The laser does get beyond that. And uh, there's a a particular kind of image, not made by human hands, in Byzantine art uh, called an achiropitas. This is an image of the Virgin, which it was miraculously created, or it could be an image of any saint, miraculously created, not actually made by a a picture. So therefore, it kind of represents the picture. I, I, I felt at times that the laser scan has taken on that kind of magic, almost religious policy of representing the building
0: in a perfect way, making the building even more perfect than it is. It's natural to wonder if these accurate scans could be used in the rebuilding of Notre-Dame. A lot of people have seen this as
1: some kind of magic bullet to, to, to fix the building. And uh, I, I, again, in, in the two weeks, that have almost two weeks that have elapsed, my first position was I think it's going to be of limited use as a means of fixing the building. Notre-Dame was completely scanned uh, by my former student, um, Andrew Tallon, who went on to be a professor at Vassar College, and um, in a several days, a week or so of work, uh, scanned the entirety of the cathedral, moving the scanner up into the galleries, up into the vault, and he has the most complete scan um, that exists, I believe. This, I think, will be useful in possibly two ways. First of all, you could compare uh, the scan that was taken um, in 2000 and between 2010 and 2015 with one that will be conducted now um, uh, after the fire. This way you can see exactly if the building has shifted, if it's deformed, if piers are leaning outwards. Uh, I think that would be very useful. Secondly, the, the scan would allow you to reconstruct the curvature, the exact form of the vault, especially the crossing vault, which is entirely collapsed. And in, in terms of planning the wooden formwork I've described, uh, this could be quite useful. And you could say the scan will be useful in in, in reconfiguring the form of the roof. But uh, my opinion um, appears towards the idea that the new roof should not necessarily feel it has to completely mimic uh, the old one. Should they decide to mimic the old one in wood, then the scan would be extraordinarily useful.
0: That's actually a great point to see how it's changed before and after the fire. So in order to know that, how precise is the laser scanning?
1: Oh, it's amazingly precise, fractions of a, of a millimeter precise. And it, it, the technology, uh, as I say, I was in the first generation. I, I'm, I was probably too early with it back in 2001. It was at that point a bit clumsy. The machines have been miniaturized, the scanners, the software has been streamlined. It gets to be more and more just the kind of commoner garden tool of the architect uh, in charge of restoring historic buildings.
0: Not only are these scans amazing in their own right, they can help reveal if Notre Dame has any hidden weaknesses that would be invisible to the naked eye. Doing a scan after the fire and comparing it to the previous scans may reveal if the masonry has changed, is bowed, or is otherwise deformed.
1: A laser scan done now uh, would uh, reveal any deformations, and you would address those deformations. Certainly, yeah. As I understand it, indirectly, I've heard that that's one reason why the French authorities are interested in. Uh, the older laser scans that um, Andrew Tallon did.
0: Yes, the fire was tragic, but it just goes to remind us, these cathedrals have their own lives. They often take hundreds of years just to be built. Then they have things added, changed and removed. They witnessed wars, neglect, fires, earthquakes. They are evolving structures. What we saw on April 15th was history in the making. In the end, this is just another event in the history of this cathedral that will continue its long life, long after most of us are gone. Spark Dialogue Podcast is produced by me, Elizabeth Fernandez. You can find us at the web at sparkdialogue.com. Thanks for joining us, and see us in two weeks for another episode. Some of the background music you heard is produced by me, Elizabeth Fernandez. Others are clips from Paris, a recording by Xera, of a priest singing with the organ at Notre Dame, Cafe Connection by Morgani, featuring Roost, and The Igmet Overture and Gymnopedia Number no. 3 by Kevin MacLeod at acompetech.com. More information about these songs can be found in the show notes at sparkdialogue.com.